You're listening to the Autism Weekly Podcast. Each week, we share community voices and bring light to stories that increase awareness, acceptance, equity, access, and inclusion. If you haven't already, subscribe to join the Autism Weekly family. I'm your host, Jeff Skabitsky. This week, we'd like to welcome Jessica Wilbur, a mother of two children with ASD, autistic disorder, and behavior technician recruiter for ABS Kids. Her sons, Chris and Alex, are now 10 and 6 years old. Jessica navigated the diagnosis of her boys, retiring from the Air Force, and relocating from Louisiana, Michigan, all while researching the best supports for her family, such as therapies, interventions, her community, the school. Now, also working as a behavior technician recruiter for ABS Kids, Jessica brings a unique view of the autism community through her experiences. We're excited to talk about what she's learned along the way and ongoing challenges, especially how the wide support options out there for families can intersect, collaborate, and even possibly compete at times. Jessica, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. It's good to be here. Well, we're we're excited. And your perspective is so unique, is the fact that you went from a, a parent who's trying to figure out everything that's going to be best for her children to somebody who now has a chance to walk not just families through the process, but to evolve passion and help people to kind of see the value of being a contributor to the community in some way. But before we go there, tell me a little bit about yourself, your sons. Um, and before and before you give me that detail, thank you for your service. Is that any time we have somebody who's come in and, and put in that time with the military, I do want to give you that that big thank you from us. But tell me about the diagnostic process, because your sons are so different. Absolutely. They absolutely are. And we we went through that process in two different states through two different organizations. And so it was a little bit different. Um, you know, starting out with with Chris, I was in an interesting situation where I had three of my friends that were all pregnant at the same time that I was. So going through those developmental stages, I had three different perspectives of people posting things on Facebook and doing things like that, that were saying, oh, you know, today my son or daughter did this or did that. or And so that was kind of my initial um, I guess looking at it as, oh, Chris isn't doing that yet. Or, you know, just kind of seeing that things were a little different. Um, and then obviously through our, our pediatric appointments, you know, not hitting milestones and doing things like that, we started to recognize that that there were differences. So, um, you know, that started out with just doing some speech therapy because he wasn't um, progressing, you know, as as fast as they would expect um, as far as the speech aspects and then ultimately being that autism diagnosis, which to be perfectly honest, I didn't know anything about it. I have heard, you know, of of this, um, the disorder before, but never really knew a lot or or understood, you know, what that meant until I was going through it personally. So, um you know, the process for, for Chris was really just um, a fairly simple appointment with a psychiatrist that, you know, they go through those steps of let's see how we get reactions on this or that or, you know, all of those things. Um, so that 
that was a fairly simple appointment and um it was very positive, surprisingly enough, um, just because the individual that did that diagnosis was very positive about it and talking about the the patients that she had diagnosed in the past and seeing how much progression they have over the years and things like that. So she was, you know, very positive about, you know, this is not it doesn't have to be negative. You know, we can we can look at this at a positive light and and still see growth and things. Um, when Alex was diagnosed, we after I retired. And so Alex's diagnosis was in Michigan. Um, obviously, at this point, we're a little more experienced. Chris is four. So, you know, we we've seen a lot of those things. We had been through ABA therapy and those things. So um, it was a little easier to recognize what you know, similarities they had through the that development process. So um, he also started out with speech therapy and then we went through that diagnosis. Um, for him, it was a little more intense only because there were multiple people they went through. It, it was longer. The process of actually sitting and going through all the testing was longer um, than it previously was. And I didn't feel the same positivity necessarily from from that as I did with the original diagnosis, but um, but we kind of you know had a lot more information and and were I guess a little bit more prepared for for that with him. Yeah, so the the path that you went through, mm -hmm. it's it's interesting. We're actually having a lot of these conversations right now um, within our teams. Is the parents are really integral in identifying a lot of this right now, as much as pediatricians are prepared and they're running sure. screeners, is that parents are the ones asking the questions. They're the ones that are kind of giving any of that feedback to their pediatrician. Um, what what were the signs? I mean, I know that you're saying, you know, I'm, I'm, I got my friends here, we're talking about this, we're seeing these developmental gaps, but what were the signs that that you identified if you were to tell parents, first of all, it doesn't need to be that scary, is that there's so many very wonderful things about raising a child who's autistic. Mm -hmm. But that being said, there are challenges. But what were the pieces that you picked out first that you said, you know, I'm going to talk to my pediatrician because something's up? Sure. Um, for, for Chris specifically, it was um, not having those initial words there were no even on a, on a minimum scale there were no mamas dadas things like that um he uh and still to this day he still does a lot of of humming and different sounds like that but not so much words um he also was not making eye contact that was a big thing there wasn't there wasn't a lot of connection with others. I always tell people the easiest way for me to explain it is that Chris saw people as other objects in the room. So there wasn't a difference between, you know, a person being in the room and any other object in the room. He was very independent. He played independently. So, um, you know, he he just, he like I said, he didn't make eye contact. Um, there was a lot of spinning um, toys and things, not necessarily using them for, you know, what we would call appropriately. So not, you know, using them in the way that that 
most children, you know, do driving cars around versus lining cars up or categorizing them in some way. Um, so there there was a lot of, of that that kind of drew our attention to it, it being a little bit different. Well, I, thank you for sharing that, because a lot of times is that it's it's the stereotypical pieces that you'd be looking sure. at. It's like, well, if your child is not making eye contact. What that means is hard. I mean, it's as a sure. parent, it's like, well, are they are they making eye contact with me or are they not? But it's looking at those other components of I'm not even concerned necessarily that my child is autistic, but these are talking points. Mm -hmm. Bring those talking points. Dialogue helps everything and say, you know, I don't feel like there's a social connection. Is there anything I need to be worried about? These are the things I'm seeing instead. Um, and the way that, that you have phrased it there probably opened up a world of conversation with the pediatrician, which is it's an important first step. Sure. But did you have you mentioned two different experiences? You mentioned mm -hmm. the one that was super positive. Uh, you had a you had a very good relationship with the pediatrician. They made you feel at ease and to know that, you know, things might change. But they're not all for the worse. Like some of them might be for the better. Who knows? Um, but we're going to work through this together. And, and there's hope for the parent to say, you know, it's this isn't this isn't a, a sentence to me having a bad life going forward or my child have a bad life going forward. It means it might be a different experience than others might have. What was the key factor between the differences between the diagnoses? One of them sounded like it was very prolonged. It looked like it might have even taken longer to even get to, which is mm -hmm. access to care issues, which we have to tackle with. But others was the bedside manner. Um, sure. What What would you give to the psychologist or, or the feedback that you'd say for a family coming in and being prepared for that process? Um, it's it's hard. I mean, to be to be perfectly honest with you, I. I would say I was in denial initially with Chris because it, he, you know, being a new mom and not having any of these experiences before, I, I actually fought back a lot with the pediatrician, you know, the things that they were saying, because, you know, you have to fill out this um, uh, list of questions that's how many of our pages long, 10 questions long of, do they do this? Do they do this? And it's sometimes, always, never, you know, going through all of that. And so you fill all that out and then you go into your appointment and it's 10 minutes or, you know, whatever. And, and, and the pediatrician is trying to get your child to do those things in that short amount of time. And so I would get frustrated because she would say, oh, didn't do this, didn't do this, didn't do this. And I'm thinking, you're giving him five seconds to do that activity. But I'm telling you, it does happen sometimes. He does do this. And so I, I push back a lot on it because it's just you don't know how to navigate that when you're a new parent and you know you have so many anxieties about everything with your child and making sure that they're okay and so you know i think most people are going to have that little piece in their head that says no there's nothing wrong with my child my child is perfect and you know and so it took me time to realize that this diagnosis still doesn't mean there's anything wrong with my child it's just different and there are different things that you have to navigate so you know i i did 
push back on that a little bit as initially, but but I definitely would say a, a lot of parents are going to be going through that experience of the unknown, not knowing. I I love that 10 years later now I can look at it and see that there is so much more awareness in our world of autism um, than, you know, when Chris got that initial diagnosis. So I do love that. And I love that people are talking about it be it clinicians or in the school system or parents or, you know, autistic individuals themselves, like there's so much more awareness about it. So that's helpful. But I think, you know, as a, as a psych, a psychiatrist or anyone else that's diagnosing, I think it's just important to keep that in mind that parents may not understand. And even more so than me, I have seen other parents that push it away even more and say, no, I don't care what your diagnosis says, that there's nothing that does not pertain to my child. And so just being able to, to like you said, have that bedside manner to just say, okay, let's just talk through this. Because I had to get to a point where I realized that if I was fighting against it and not getting my kids what the help that they needed, the only people that were hurt by that were them. Yeah, absolutely. And 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 there is, there's this weird intersection between awareness, acceptance, celebration that exists, I mean, when you're raising a child. And it exists also when you're raising a child who's autistic. It's like, how do I, how am I aware of everything my child's capable of doing? Where am I accepting that, you know, some of these things are not in their repertoire? And how do I help them to celebrate who they are? And as a family do that, but it becomes harder when you're talking about, okay, so now I have school, now I have intervention, now I have family members, and now I have other stakeholders that are in my child's life. So as a parent, how do you juggle all of these competing needs and still have a semblance of life? I mean, it it feels like you're constantly having to inform, advocate, be a voice. Um, how does that work out from the family perspective? I think um, part of it just is blocking out the negative. I think that that's the first step that you you just have to do um, to be able to keep kind of your sanity. Um, but you know, again, you know, the other piece of that too. While I got to a place of acceptance within myself, I wasn't really sharing it with a lot of people. Um, You know, obviously close family, close friends knew about what was going on, but I was not sharing it with the world. And then one day I just kind of woke up and I thought, if I'm, what am I, what am I doing? Like, why am I choosing to do this? Um, You know, part of it was a place of protection because I, I felt like I was protecting specifically Chris at that point by saying, "Um, no, I'm not going to tell anybody that there's anything going on because people will judge him or people will not understand or, you know, whatever that looks like. Um, But then I thought, as much as I'm not sharing what all these challenges are, I'm also not sharing those celebrations. And every time we would have, 
you know, a moment where something would happen and I was excited about it. I wasn't sharing that either because nobody knew and no one would understand, you know, for me to to jump in and say, oh, my five-year-old completed a full sentence would not be understood by the general public because would have to be that full conversation. And so I did just wake up one day and said, I'm not going to do this anymore. And so I put a post out there on Facebook for family and friends in the world to see and said, this is, this is Chris. This is where he is. These are the struggles we have. These are the amazing things that he has been able to accomplish and where that has gone. And I was, so surprised, not only by the support that I got from my family and friends, but also what I didn't expect was to have so many people come back to me and say, we're going through the same thing. Or my child is two, three years old, and these are the things that I'm seeing. How did you know? And so being able to now go to a place where I'm able to help other people just simply by telling my story and telling Chris's story, um, I, I was kicking myself for not doing it earlier, you know, so. Well, don't kick yourself on that. I mean, it, it, <laughs> it, courage comes at different times. And quite frankly, it's when when we're all trying to understand our own emotions around something, it's so hard to put that out there for others to absorb and to face any potential backlash. And that's the society we're in, is that you might get some positive feedback at times. But accompanied with that, you've got to know that there's going to be people who are going to say things that you just don't want to hear. And that could be family members. It could be your teachers. It could be um, somebody in the community as you're trying to integrate and just live the life that you want to live with your family. So when you went through this process, part of that integration and trust and vulnerability is being able to say, okay, well, I need the right community around me. Sure. How did you how did you go from you finally put it out there, you're celebrating with your family, you've accepted some things that you guys are gonna have to modify as a family to be able to work through challenges, but now I need to find the right groups to help me on this journey. How did you start that process? So um, it's a hard question to answer just because I think there are still things that I need to do um, and, and ways that I need to do that. I, I feel like overall, I've kind of been lucky to be in a community and in, a, in an area where a lot of those things are already present. So little things like our mall did a um, sensory friendly Santa meeting. So you could actually set up an appointment where they keep the lights down and the music is off and they schedule them during times that the mall's not actually open. So there are no people in there. And so just having those sensory friendly events that, you know, you can go in and you can do those things and, and it's a little easier for your kids to navigate um, are extremely helpful. Um, I think, you know, I, I got a lot of or, um, recommendations as far as like support groups and things like that when Chris was initially diagnosed and for the same, I guess, kind of for the same reasons that I didn't say things on Facebook, I didn't do those things, um, which I fully 
fully recommend for any parents out there that you do, because within the last year, one of Chris's classmates, um, his her mother reached out to me and said, you know, they're really getting along in school and we'd like to do some things outside of school. And so over the last year, we've done a lot of things together. And so we, you know, the kids get along and then, um, you know, she and I connect and, and are able to talk about things and you know what are you seeing or what challenges do you go through and just having somebody that understands that you know you don't have to do a full explanation of everything I can say something as small as well Chris was up until three in the morning and she's like oh yeah got it (laughs) so you know just little things like that where where you have somebody that understands you and understands you know what what you go through yeah, those those personal connections you can't replace. Sure. I do love the fact that you had a community that tried to be able to create more inclusive opportunities um, that didn't say that, hey, you can't be a part of this, but instead figured out how do I make sure that you can be a part of it? And I've seen that with um uh, airlines where they'll say, hey, you know what, let's do this. Let's get everybody out there who hasn't experienced this before and needs extra support. Let's give them a chance to walk through, see an airplane, do all that. I've seen it with restaurants where they say, you know what, we are going to create the environment so that everybody has a chance to be able to eat at our restaurant, enjoy our food, enjoy our, our ambiance or whatever it may be. Sure. Um, it does take that community relationship. Um, On that same note, when we're talking about community, there's a passion, there's a drive, there's compassion, empathy that exists out there in so many people. And right now, you're taking your experience as a parent who is such a strong advocate for your own children, and you're trying to expand that. You're trying to say, I need talented people around me all the time. What is it that that you're looking for when you're saying, you know what? We need more people to be passionate about my kids, about kids like my kids, and that can really help them be them their best selves. Sure. It's uh, first of all, it's really hard to um, and I actually choose not, I guess, to disconnect those two pieces when I'm talking to somebody. So, um, you know, in an interview, I, I I always have that piece in the back of my mind that says, is this the kind of person that I would want working with my child? Is this, you know, and I and I've experienced a pretty wide gambit through school systems, through ABA therapy, through providers, through the general public, which is a little bit different. But obviously, I I have experienced the wide gambit of people that maybe are not in the right field and people that are just amazing and can draw things out of your kids that you didn't even know were there. So so I I, I definitely feel like I've seen all of that from the personal side. So um you know when looking at behavior technicians the the big thing is just having that passion. I feel like there's there's there are so many jobs in this world that you can just teach somebody how to do it and they're gonna be great. I don't think this is one of those. You have to have a certain level of um, just desire to work with children and compassion and and certain things that 
you know, that just can't be taught. But at the same time, it's not just like, you know, your typical daycare type situation. There there are a lot of challenges with it. So you have to be able to um, to be strong in that where you still have that piece of compassion and you're able to say, OK, if you need to just slow down and take a break, then that's OK. But that's not going to stop us from completing this task like you're still going to have to be able to do it. So being able to have that compassion combined with a strength of saying, you know, you still have to do these things, I think is very important for sure. Yeah. And, you know, the whole field is is learning this over time. It was a science-based field, still is, but now it's a practitioner science-based mm-hmm. field. We need that empathy. We need that that compassion to be able to really understand how am I going to help this person to achieve their goals, not my goal. Mm-hmm. How am I going to help them to achieve their goals? Um, and it's a position where the behavior technician, the one that, that you're recruiting for, it might be one of the hardest jobs anybody's going to be walking into. But I will also say it's probably one of the most rewarding when you take a step back and you're able to enjoy the celebration that we talked about earlier and do that with the family, do that with the school, do that with everybody, is that you can't forget that part of the job as you're working through it because it's so empowering. Um, and intrinsically, there's not a better feeling than to know that I help somebody today. Sure. Um, so what is it that, that we're running into? Because I'll, I'll be honest, is that as an industry, it's a very, very tough position. It's entry level mm-hmm. oftentimes, and, and there are career paths. There are ways to go on it. But in order to get to the career paths, you're doing some very tough work on a regular basis. What is it that that needs to be highlighted to be able to make sure that those people who really have that passion don't burn out? Those people who really care about what they're doing and really want to be a part of something bigger than themselves have a role to be able to play and feel like they're valued. What is it that needs to be bridged there? Well, I, you know, I think to a certain extent, it's really just about checking in, you know, checking in and saying, how are you? You know, your your BCBAs and, and those supervisory positions just keeping a close eye on their behavior technicians and, you know, obviously RBTs as well. Um, but just watching that and saying, do you have everything that you need? Are you struggling? Are And, and giving them a platform to be able to express that honesty and say, you know, it, it's too much this week, or it's, you know, what I mean to be to be able to to talk through those things, um, I, I think is very important. And, you know, we also um, I ha- I have found a lot lately that a fairly significant amount of the people that I interview have autism in their family somewhere, whether it be their children or nieces and nephews or cousins. or So I I think that awareness of autism and what ABA therapy is, is definitely bringing more people in. And I think it's important that we're just continually out there and talking about it, because I think as as more people become aware that this exists, the more we're going to have joining the field. 
Yeah, and and when you stop and think about it, is that you're talking about you know checking in with the their managers, their clinicians, BCBS. But I don't want to downplay how much of a leadership role and how many leadership skills a behavior technician is uh, demonstrating, learning, developing in their role because they are leading a child in the child recognizing their strengths. They're leading on how to be able to really empower somebody, see those gaps, see those areas where the child excels and pull them out of that person. That's what leaders do. They empower those under uh, that they're working with. So I think that some of these things that are intrinsic to great career paths, good opportunities are established at that behavior technician role. And it, it is a good place to start. And if you can find that difference, I think it's so important. And as a family member who received care, you want to know that those things exist and that, and that those right people are hired because you don't want to have to do that yourself. You want for the organization to be able to support their own teams that way. Um, so as as you've kind of gone through this process and it and it's been a journey, I would I would imagine. You've had two different sons that experienced autism very differently, of course, the, mm-hmm. like most people do. Their trajectories and paths, very different. Um, and if I'm correct, intensive therapy isn't a part of their everyday treatment right now. Is that they've mm-hmm. integrated, they've they've recognized areas probably where, you know, there's there's gaps here, but strengths here. And, you know, I'm navigating life on my own right now. And there's little nuances. What do you tell the family that is going through the process? And you're mm-hmm. you're not necessarily at the tail end. Who knows what a tail end of this process is? But you're at a place where you have independent children. What do you tell them about, you know, the patience that it might take, the the dedication that it took to get to where you are? Because it's not an overnight success like with any child rearing system um it it's definitely endless it's it's an endless need for patience and dedication and everything else um and and it's trial and error it's okay to you know realize that something is not working the way that you need it to work and i think the important thing is to make sure that you use your voice where your kids don't have one because that has been the biggest piece. And we did that from the very beginning because even, you know, back before Chris had his diagnosis, when we started speech therapy at two years old with him um, through the state program, the early start program, the very first person that we worked with, she was great. Um, she had a supervisor that just, when she came into our home and the way that she handled things and the way that she spoke to and about my child, we were not comfortable with. And so we went back to them and said, this isn't going to work for us. And so they made the change. They sent us a new speech therapist and she was amazing. She's still my Facebook friend. She still checks in on Chris. And, you know, so she she was there for some of his very first, um, you know, celebrations for sure. She she was there the first time he said a word. So, you know, um, but I think that 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 is 
definitely important to know when something isn't working right or someone is not the best fit. And it's not necessarily about the person either. You can, you know, you can have a therapist that's great personally, but just doesn't connect with your child. And, and that's because of the nature of all of those things, ABA, speech therapy, occupational therapy, going to school, all of those things. It's so important to have that connection. And if it's not there, you have to try something else and you have to be willing to stand up and say, we need to try something else because this is not working for him or her. And, you know, we, we, we need it to. Yeah. For some reason we, we all feel like with individual therapy or with psychotherapy that the connection is extremely valuable, but we forget often when it's behavioral therapy, that that connection is just as important. And there are going to be times where hard conversations have to be had between family members and uh, and clinicians and between the recipient of care. I'm sure that you want your, your sons growing up where they're going to advocate for themselves. Say, hey, this is not good. I don't like this. And for their voice to be equally as powerful as any advocate around them. And I think that is. It's healthy. I think it's good conversations to have. And I'm glad that I'm glad that you put that out there. And I don't know that all parents have all the all the trust that they can do this without being penalized, without somebody looking down on them, without mm-hmm. losing a resource. Um, but I'd say have the conversation. I think it's super important. And if it's a temporary setback, then it's a temporary setback. But right. it's better for the long run. Um, so where where do you suggest that that families go for additional information. And where do you also suggest people that are listening right now and like, you know what, I want to be a part of this. I want to know how to be able to get involved. Like, where can they start learning? Where can they start hearing the voices? Where can they start to get a better picture of what the autistic experience is from varieties of of viewpoints? Well, and I I think we're we're lucky that we're in a a time now where social media is just so prevalent because you can find it anywhere. Honestly, you can do Google searches. You can, you know, search for Facebook groups. You can search even on LinkedIn. I'm in a couple parent groups um, as well as um, the Autism Society and things like that, where you're just able to to see those things. Um, but I mean, social media just has a massive amount. And I think there's always going to be a little trial and error there too, to find, you know, groups that are, that are where you, you can see yourself fitting in and, and that are, are truly accepting, but, um, but definitely try, 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 try again. You know, if it doesn't work the first time, find a different group. But, um, I think a lot of resources and it, you know, it depends on your community too. We, um, here in the area that I live in, in Michigan, um, we actually have an organization called KRESA that is the the Kalamazoo Regional Educational Service Agency that um, you can always get information from outside of just schools. But I, I, I am just, I feel like I'm so um, lucky to have that and to be in this area because 
they help parents navigate things like IEPs and they're always in those meetings. So it's not just um, not to say not to sound negative, but not in a negative way, but it's not just the parent against the school, yeah. like trying to fight those things out. You you just I don't have to worry so much about that because they're there and they advocate for for my children. And mm-hmm. um, so that that's a wonderful thing. Um, but they they have different things that they advertise as well as far as support groups and and those sensory friendly events and things that I was talking about as well. I would imagine that's also a great place for somebody who's saying, you know, I want to get my foot wet in this type of career and experience some of the some of the families that that would be impacted and some of the children, some of the young adults. I I want to be a part of something. Sure. And I would imagine whether it's the community resource center, the parents uh, the parent support groups, uh, the parent centers or um, anything that's out there, it's just they have volunteer opportunities. Sure. And you know what? If you want to know, hey, is this is this something I I feel like fits me? Why not? Like, why not try that and then find your path from there and start exploring careers if that's where it guides you. Um, but Jessica, I appreciate all that all that you're doing, all the voice that that you've developed. I mean, it sounds like at one point you were scared to have it, but I'm glad that that voice is out there because it's going to empower so many other people. So thank you for your courage. But um, and also thank you for coming onto the podcast today and sharing that experience. Sure, of course. Thank you for listening to Autism Weekly. We hope you tune back in next week to learn more about autism in the real world. Autism Weekly is now found on all the major listening apps, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Amazon Music, and more. Subscribe to be notified when we post a new podcast. Autism Weekly is produced by ABS Kids. ABS Kids is proud to provide diagnostic assessments and ABA therapy to children with developmental delays like autism spectrum disorder. You can learn more about ABS Kids and the Autism Weekly podcast by visiting abskids.com. Thanks for tuning in. See you again next week. Thank you.